Hey, if, you, uh, if we haven't met, my name is Blake Sherman. I'm the young adult minister, and I'm super excited to talk with you. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, and we have a, kind of a lot to cover, and I'm going to be talking as fast as I can, which is not very fast for me. So we'll be going as fast as I can uh, to get through. I think we have a lot of things ahead of us. You know, uh, this past couple, or this past year, and these, particularly these past couple of months, I've been hearing phrases like, man, the world has gone mad or this is just crazy, or even the really honest, I don't even know what to think, you know. I, I remember reading somewhere the other day, someone said, I don't know about y'all, but I'm ready for some precedented times, you know, like, just ready for something to not be unprecedented. And uh, it is just this chaotic, complex moment. And what I've found is that whenever things get really hard and really complex, it's helpful to lean back on something very simple and true. And that's what we're going to look at today is something that is simple and true and I believe will help us navigate the complex, something from the teaching of Jesus. Uh, to give you the context of the passage, basically what had been happening is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were trying to stump Jesus. And so before this, the Pharisees came to him with a political question about Caesar, uh, but Jesus didn't fall for it, avoided the trap. Then the Sadducees came with a theological question and Jesus totally answered it perfectly. And then they kind of come with this last question. And in this last question, they want to know what the greatest commandment is. And the reason they're asking this question is because during the time, uh, there were different schools of thought. Uh, different rabbis, different teachers would say that there were some commands that were greater than others. And the reason they said this was because there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament or the, the Mosaic Law. And so according to uh, rabbinic tradition, there are 613 commandments. So naturally, you're going to overemphasize or underemphasize certain commands. And so what people want to know is, what's the greatest command? You know, if we get any of them, what, what should we focus on? Um, and you can kind of see how, how I do think it is very applicable to our situation because... It's so complex and, you know, you wake up and there's this huge issue and it's like everyone needs to be working towards this issue. Or you wake up and there's this huge problem, there's this scandal, there's this death and everyone's looking in a thousand directions. And sometimes I just want to step back and go, what, like, what am I supposed to be doing? And what Jesus is going to offer us is the greatest commandment and I believe that it will help us navigate these times. So if you have your Bible, would you read with me, starting in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. So the law meaning Mosaic law, the Old Testament. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, we're going to dive into the greatest commandments before, but before we get there, I want to talk about what does Jesus mean when he says all the law and the prophets hang on these two? So clearly, we are to love God and we're to love our neighbor, right? But why does all the law and the prophets hang on these two? Is he saying that, you know, don't worry about any of the other Old Testament laws, just forget about those? These are kind of lesser laws, but just focus on these. I mean, what is he saying? Clearly, he's not saying that, because in Matthew 5, Jesus said that he is the fulfillment of the law, and that the law will not pass away. So he's not saying, don't worry about any of the other laws. 
He's saying something else entirely. Um, the best way I can kind of explain it is several weeks ago, uh, I was putting together a backyard playset, and it came disassembled. And so there were just hundreds of wooden parts all over my yard, and I had hundreds of screws. So I called for the best backup I could get, Case Smith, the director of recreation. So he shows up, and we have, my community group's laughing. So uh, we show up, we have this little booklet, and uh, we're working through this booklet, putting it all together. And what would happen is it would be like, get part 321 with 132B, and then get this screw with this washer, and then this lock nut, and it was this complex thing. And we would be standing there, and eventually what we would have to do is we'd get confused and kind of disoriented, and we'd say, hold on a second, what does it look like again? And we'd flip to the front and look at the picture on the cover, and we'd say, oh, that's what it looks like. So the door is right there, the window's above it, the swing's to the right, slides on the left. And what we were doing is that we were looking at what does the whole look like? What is, how do we interpret this small law in light of the whole, right? How do we interpret this? And this is what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that none of the Old Testament matters, but he's saying, if you wanna know how to understand the law and the prophets, when you step back and you close the book, it is about loving God with your entirety and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's how you understand it. And so today, my invitation to you is in this complex moment to take your life close the book on it, and say, am I loving God with my entirety? Am I loving my neighbor as myself? That's the question. Y'all excited? I'm excited. Let's dig into it. All right. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. This comes from Deuteronomy 6. And this is um, a law that they would have been extremely familiar with. It was part of the Shema prayer. And when God originally gave it to them in Deuteronomy, he instructed them, hey, pray it when you wake up, pray it when you go to sleep, pray, talk about it when you're on the road, talk about it when you're at home, teach it to your kids, write it on your doorpost, strap it to your hands, strap it to your head. He was just ingraining, like just surrounding them with this law saying, keep this with you all the time. So they would have known this law. This was very familiar to them. But the thing that stuck out to me is if God's a king, and he's starting this kingdom and he's inviting us to be a part of it. Wouldn't the command be something like, obey your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind? Wouldn't that be it? But he doesn't say it. He says, love. And this is something that Jesus has been trying to get through to us all throughout the gospel, is that he's not after just right behavior. He cares about that. He's not after just right thinking. He cares about that. He's after our heart, our desire our affection, our love. James K. Smith, he's a philosopher at Calvin College, and he has argued, and I would say convincingly, that if you look at philosophy and then you look at everything that we see in Scripture, humans are primarily creatures of love, creatures of desire, meaning we were made to worship and we are going to worship. No matter what, the question is not, do you worship something? It's what do you worship? Because everyone here worships something. Everyone here loves something. The question is, is it God or not? We all love. But what we like to believe is that we're primarily thinking creatures. Um, and maybe you've felt this before, is that you think like, oh man, I just heard this great podcast. I just read this book. I just heard that great sermon. Everything's gonna be different now. Maybe you've left this room before being like, everything's going to be different now. And then fast forward three days, has anything changed? Maybe. 
Maybe the Holy Spirit broke through and got to your heart, but a lot of times we know what we should do, but we don't do it. Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans, right? We know what we want to do, and we have our best thinking, but sometimes our best thinking doesn't work, and the reason is, is because you have desires that are counter to your best thinking. You can say all day long that you desire that, but if your heart doesn't actually desire it, then it won't follow. Um, and we understand this, right? Like, we understand at some level that we are creatures of desire. To kind of illustrate this, there is um, a famous verse that you hear thrown around a lot, particularly with youth in college, and it's Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And the reason that you hear this verse a lot is that people use it for romantic relationships. And they'll say, guard your heart, guard your heart. And what they're saying is, be careful about your affection and your desire getting stirred up for somebody so your heart gets snagged on them. Like, be careful about loving somebody or something that you can't have or shouldn't have. Guard your heart. Be careful about how your affections are stirred up. And we know this at a romantic level. We do. That's why, as a married man, you will never find me hanging out with a woman one-on-one that's not my wife. And someone might say, well, Blake, how could you ever think to betray your wife? He's like, I would never think to betray my wife. I never would. But I also understand, and common human knowledge is, that we are creatures of desire. And that sometimes our desires get the best of us. And that I'm a creature of desire, and this person across from me is a creature of desire. And if I'm not careful, my desires can betray my best thinking. And we know this at a romantic level, but we don't seem to understand that that happens at a heart level with God as well. That we're still creatures of love and desire. And so the thing is, is if... You know, I'm talking with uh, someone that's dealing with habitual sin. And let's take, you know, the one that I talk with people a lot about. If they're addicted to pornography, um, what I will do is I don't sit there and try to explain to them that pornography is bad. Clearly, they know it's bad. That's why they came to talk to me is that they follow God, they love Jesus, and they say, I'm doing this, I'm in sin, I don't want to be looking at this. How do I get out of it? So I don't spend time just saying, well, you just need more information. What I do is I say, hey, uh, tell me about what TV shows you're watching. Tell me about what music you're listening to. Who do you hang out with? What do you look at on social media? What I'm asking is, what is stirring your desire and your affection? Who are you loving? Who is the other lover in your life? Because if it was God, you would naturally go in that direction. Uh, What James K. Smith, as he puts it this way, It's kind of heavy, but follow it. He says, our orienting loves are like a kind of gravity, carrying us in the direction to which they are weighted. If our loves are absorbed with material things, then our love is a weight that drags us downward to inferior things. But when our loves are animated by the renewing fire of the spirit, then our weight tends upward. What he's saying is the thing that you love will become like gravity to you and it will pull you in that direction. So you might have all the best thinking, and you might know everything you need to do, but if you love something else, your heart will be pulled in that direction, and that will be what you love, and that will be the place of your affection and your desire. So the question is not what do you, not not do you love something, but what do you love? Do you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, or is there another lover in your life? 
This is what Jesus has been getting at for a long time. You know, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can't, it's like gravity. I mean, you can fight against it, but it's going to slowly pull you in that direction. So we have to be mindful. But what we like to think is that we, again, we like to think that we can just control it by really good thinking. So what we do is we turn on that TV show that you know you shouldn't watch, but you go, because I know I shouldn't watch it, it's safe for me to watch. But what that's doing is messing with your heart. You might be sitting there going, this is bad. I know it's bad, but it's messing with your heart. And we have to protect, we have to guard our hearts because where our hearts are, where our love and our affection is, everything else will flow from it. Jesus does care about obedience. He really does. He cares about true obedience. He cares about what you think. And the reason he goes at the heart is because that's where it flows from. Do you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind? Really what I'm describing is I'm describing counter forms of worship. And that we spend our days like that. So let's talk about how do we, how do we love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind? Well, you worship him, right? Worship is a calibrating of the heart. When you come in here on a Sunday and you sing songs to God, regardless of your circumstance or how you're feeling, that's calibrating your heart in the direction of where you want your affections and your desires to be stirred. It's just saying, this is what I'm about. This is who I need to be about. And if, you know, we're going to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, it's going to take a lot of time, right? It's going to take a lot of time to love adequately. It's hard to imagine that a life, I'm not trying to shame anyone here. This is a message for me too. But it's hard to imagine a life loving God fully. And you say, okay, so tell me about the times you spend with God. And you go, well, 10 minutes on the weekdays and then a couple hours on Sunday. But I love God with my entirety. But then you look at your life and there's all these other altars and places of worship all throughout your weekday. And you know, I don't think that God, whenever he told them in Deuteronomy, hey, Talk about it when you're on the road. Sit about it at home and talk about it. Teach it to your kids right on the doorpost. I don't think he was saying that because he's like, y'all are clearly really bad at memorizing verses. So this is just the best way we can get to it. You know? No, he was creating a culture of worship and of love and devotion all around the mundane in their lives. And so I think some of us, we have to figure out what doorposts do I need to be writing this on? Um, one of the ways that my family does it, and as soon as Paul asked me to teach on this, I knew I was going to have to share this, but... Uh, one of the ways that my family does this is we have a Sherman family mission statement. And so uh, at dinner we'll pray, and then I'll say, Sherman family mission statement. And then uh, my three-year-old can kind of do it. My one-year-old does one hand motion. Uh, but I came up with a mission statement based on this verse, and Kara came up with emotions. But what we say is <laughs> we are loved. Now we love God, and we love others by the training of our hearts the captivation of our souls, the attention of our minds, and the enlisting of our strengths. That's the one my three-year-old likes. All for the glory of King Jesus and his kingdom. And the reason we do that is that it calibrates us towards what we love and what we desire. And sometimes, let me tell you, that is the most awkward thing to say after prayer is because we have toddlers and we're cooking a meal, tempers got high and everyone's kind of chaotic and we sit down flustered and then I go, Sherman family mission statement. (laughs) We are loved, now we love God. But what happens is it starts to turn our hearts back towards God and we we remember who we are and what we're about. 
It doesn't matter what I'm feeling. It starts to calibrate my feelings towards God. And sometimes what happens is, you know, we say we are loved. Now we love God and we love others. And the conversation changes at dinner where my wife might say, like, we haven't had anyone over in two weeks. And the reason she's saying that is because we are to love others, which brings me to the next part. He says, the second command is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so basically what this is saying is, the reason it's the second is because if your heart is naturally inclined, like gravity pulling towards the things that God loves, then you will love the things that God loves. And what God loves is your neighbor. That's what God loves. If you claim vertically to love God, then you will love what God loves horizontally, right? This is what it means. You cannot say, I don't love my neighbor and I love God. It doesn't work. They're, they're intimately connected. If you love God, you will love your neighbor. Well, who's your neighbor? Um, you know, Jesus kind of already taught about this in the Good Samaritan. I like how G.K. Chesterton put it. He breaks down Jesus' teaching. He says, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because they're generally the same people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, you are to love everybody. That is your neighbor, even your enemies. You know, even Republicans? Yes, even Republicans. Even Democrats? Yes, Democrats. Everybody. Stop, please stop. Stop drawing a boundary around your life and saying, this is who's worthy of my love. Because you know what? God didn't do that for you. We shouldn't be the ones that say, you know what? This is, this is who's my neighbor. This is in my circle. Because God didn't do that for us. If he did that, we would be on the outside looking in, wondering what is it like to have the love of God? There is no one outside our circle because we weren't outside of God's. We're to love our neighbor. That's what it means. If we love God, we will love our neighbor, no matter who they are or what they've done. And that's the really hard part is whenever we see that they're inherently sinful or there's something really bad in their life, we feel like that might disqualify them. Uh, it reminds me of something C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about how for the longest time he hated when Christian teachers would say, hate the sin, love the sinner. Because he would sit there and go, that's impossible. You can't. You can't divide the two. And then he realized he'd been doing it his entire life with himself. And that's what we do, right? We see this in our lives where we go, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty solid person. You know, that doesn't define me, that sin. But with other people, we go, no, that's them. It's kind of like when you're driving, you know, like when someone cuts you off, you're like on your horn, like yelling, like they're the worst driver in the world. But then when you cut somebody off, you're like, I'm actually a really good driver. I'm sorry. If you just knew me, you would know I'm actually a really good driver. This is the way we operate with other people is that we just treat them as if they have no clue and they are so far from God. But guess what? We all were, but Jesus Christ came near. If you're going to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, you're going to have to love your neighbor. So, Maybe you're hearing this and you're saying, yeah, I wanna, I wanna respond right now. You know, I, I wanna love God with everything I have. I wanna love my neighbor. I, I really wanna get invested in that, but how do I know what love is? Because that's the one thing is, in Western civilization, all of us would agree that love is a good virtue, but we would disagree on what love actually is. Thankfully, scripture spells it out. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Isn't that awesome? It just spells it out. This is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, then Jesus fulfilled these two laws. And if you want to know how to live out these two laws, you look at Jesus. This is how you know what love is, Jesus Christ. That's how you know. And maybe right now, you know, you're sitting here and you're going, look, I want to do that. I want to respond that way. Um, what, what do I need to do to get there, to get to that love? And here's the good news. This is the best news I could give you. Is that the only reason you can love God, the only reason you can love other people is because God first loved you. We love God because he first loved us. First John 4. You don't have to drum up your desire and affection and win the approval of God for him to love you back. Actually, he already loved you. And we're sitting here chasing other lovers, but he is faithfully, patiently waiting to love. He's, he's loving us right now. It's just a matter of, are we going to respond to him in relationship? That's the beautiful thing about our God. You know, one of the things is that, I think about this all the time, that never, ever when we talk to God do we have the first word. That from the very beginning, God has had the first word. When he spoke creation into existence, when the word became flesh and walked among us, God has had the first word for a long time. It's just a matter of whether or not you're going to respond to what he has said. And what he has said is, you are so loved that I'm sending my son to die on a cross so you can be in relationship with me. That is the first word. Are you going to respond to it? We are loved. Now we love God and love others by the training of our hearts, the captivation of our souls. That's what, you know, that's what we're called to. That's what you're made to do. You're going to worship somebody. And let me tell you, the life of flourishing, the good life, I know you see a thousand other things sold on TV, but the good life is with Jesus. That's where it's at. Would y'all pray with me? Just with your heads bowed, um, if right now you're feeling that need and that call to respond to God's love and, and you're hearing that he loves you and you don't have to do anything to earn his affection and desire because of what Jesus did, um, would you just right now um, by yourself at your seat, just call out to God in the quiet of your mind and just say, God, I know you've already spoken that you love me. I just want to speak back that I love you and I want you to have my entirety. And if you do that, would you grab a minister today or grab somebody in this room and tell them? God, we love you. And we thank you that you loved us first. And God, just forgive us for how often we trick ourselves into thinking that we can divide our loyalties, divide our loves. God, forgive us for whenever we do chase other lovers, we worship other gods, we worship other things. We want to love you with our entirety. And we know that has implications for the way we live our lives and the way that we love other people. Forgive us whenever we have drawn a circle around our lives and declared who is worthy and who isn't. as we respond and worship, would you just calibrate our hearts for 
reorient our desires and our affection and our love towards you. Let our love for you become like gravity, pulling us in the direction of your purposes and your desires. God, would you become a grid that as we live this complex life and this complex time, that you're this grid that we just see things through, that we wanna love you and we wanna love other people. That we run everything through that. Yeah, God, you deserve all praise and honor. Would you be with us now?